Hi everyone and welcome back. I'm Michael Costello, Managing Director of Workplace Evolution. I trust you're all well, ready to sit back and relax and listen to our latest podcast, which has the pleasure of meeting with Andrew McMillan, former Customer Services Director at the John Lewis Partnership. This podcast is released at a time that John Lewis is not only under new management by Dame Sharon White, but also it's under incredible pressures having just announced a meagre and token 2% bonus, the lowest awarded to employees since 1953. We cover this and more such as the unique history and business model of John Lewis partnership, whether the idea of profit sharing is still relevant, how to build a reputation for service excellence, and whether John Lewis really can weather the storm ahead. A huge thank you to Andrew, who shares not only many of his methods and tools to improve service excellence, but also answers the difficult questions on what is a very uncertain time for the high street in the UK. Stay tuned for our next podcast with Dr. Raj Pasord and Wayne Hemingway over Easter. For now, take care, guys. Andrew McMillan, a very warm welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. After 26 years of hard work in JLP, I imagine that you're probably retired with your feet up in a John Lewis estate somewhere right now. But is, is that the case? No, I probably should be. Um, but no, when I left John Lewis, I joined a consultancy small consultancy in the city of London um, and I was with them for a while and then actually started my own business which I always said I would never do but um, I got to the point where I thought actually I'd rather be doing this on my own so no, still still going around the country visiting various businesses mainly in the UK but about 20% outside the UK. Well you've had an incredible time there and, it, and there's an incredible history for us to to explore. Let's start off with JLP, John Lewis Partnership. As we speak there is a shed load of announcements going on, uh, coming out from the new chair, which we'll, we'll definitely get onto. But we, we can't ignore the, the history and the culture of John Lewis. It's just such a significant part of its offering. Fascinating history. Can you tell us a little bit about the unique partnership model that the, the late, great John Spedden Lewis brought to us in, in the 1920s? Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it is an unusual um, arrangement, but not unique. But in as much as he decided, John Speed and Lewis was actually the son of John Lewis. John Lewis was his father was a draper in Oxford Street, who was a kind of traditional um, Victorian stroke Edwardian businessman, um, running a business in a very traditional way. And his son felt um, that actually it was unfair, hugely unfair. Um, that the owners of the business were earning thousands at the time and the, the, the employees in the business were often quite poor um, and felt there was a better way of doing business. So what he did um, over two trust settlements, um, the last one in, oh gosh, I can't remember the exact date, 1950-something, uh, was actually handed over the business, the ownership of the business, to its employees, um, which was a remarkable thing to do. It's not, as I say, it's not um, unique. Other businesses do it, and in fact, there is an organisation called um, the Employee Ownership Association, um, who are a body that bring together 
co-owners, it's called, or employee-owned businesses. And John Lewis is very active with them, uh, and I think with the largest member, because I think it's still the largest co-owned business in, in, in the uh, country. Um, but yes, quite special what he did, and, and the, the trust settlements which were challenged a few years ago um, proved to be irrevocable, except with an act of parliament. So he was very serious about what he did. Wow. And, you know, this is a hundred years ago that this was happening. What were some of the reactions to when it was first suggested by John Spud and Lewis? Well, anecdotally, um, and from the kind of partnership, John Lewis partnership archives, his father was not too pleased about it. So um, the kind of full co-ownership structure kind of came in after his father's death. Um, but initially, it was an experiment for Speed and Lewis. Um, John Lewis, his father, had bought Peter Jones in Sloan Square uh, as a second uh, shop to his Oxford Street shop. Uh, and at, a, at some point, gave Speed and Lewis his son that shop to run. Uh, and it was commercially very successful, which was obviously one of the things that spurred him on to, to believe he was onto a really good thing. And there's a lot of archive footage from John Lewis Partnership. You can find that on various various platforms and you know we talk about in the work that we do you that you and i do we talk about leadership we talk about management and often that definition comes through doesn't it the leadership is about doing the right things management is about doing things right that's, that's quite a common one it, and it appears like he was doing that a hundred years ago did you hear anything about john sped and lewis any kind of stories or any anything that was passed down through through the ranks uh, over time, just to give us a bit of an insight into the man. He was a prolific writer, so you can get a sense of the man from his writing, uh, a lot of which is still quite inspirational, actually. It's an overused word, but it is quite inspirational. As you say, Mike, I think that the amazing thing is this was happening over 100 years ago, um, which when you think of the kind of general social attitudes that prevailed in Britain at that time, he was exceptional. Mm -hmm. um, but the two stories that kind of I remember from being a youngster, uh, starting at John Lewis back in the 1980s, was um, that the actual partnership, the idea of the partnership and the co-ownership came after he'd had a riding accident and was recuperating in bed after quite a nasty fall from a horse, um, which I always found quite amusing. And the other story, and again, I don't know how true this is, it was something I was told by somebody who worked in Peter Jones at the time, who did remember the founder uh, walking Peter Jones and running the business was that he had a hatred of redheads, uh, not just females, but males as well, right. which I thought was quite, quite amusing and quite eccentric. So um, I'm struggling to find the link, the link here between falling off a horse, a slight prejudice towards redheads, and actually coming up with a vision. Help, help me join the dots here, Andrew. Well, I think, I think it just illustrates, and, and if you read some of his writing, um, it was slightly eccentric in some of the things that he did but i think to have been yeah. such a visionary you probably needed to be slightly eccentric but i think he was quite an unusual chap and, and the other thing which is fact that he did um was when he appointed um, bernard miller as the second chairman after himself as he was going into retirement um one of the things that john lewis does which i think is still fabulous is you're allowed to write to the in-house publications anonymously to challenge and criticize and question the business and he absolutely harangued the new chairman most of the rest of his retired life. The chairman was doing with his baby, as it was, that he produced. So I think, you know, he, he wasn't a saint by any means. He was a visionary, he was inspirational, he was incredible in what he did, handing over the family business to the employees, you know, through these trust settlements. But 
I, I don't think it was the same by any means. So there's a slight maverick flavour, but with, without that, perhaps it would never have happened. Absolutely, absolutely. So I think I think he was quite a special character. There's a lovely piece of video that actually I think you can find online of him talking in his garden. Uh, I think it's at Lakeford. Uh, it's a bit of colourful picture from about 1960s, shortly before he died, uh, about how he how he feels about his reflections on his life life's work. Um, and you get you get some sense of the man from that actually. He was quite quite special, I think. I'll be sure to watch it. If I can find it, we'll put it in the podcast notes. I guess the, the killer question is, is his vision and his legacy still alive and well to your knowledge then, Andrew? Um, I think so. I mean, obviously what was relevant in the 1920s is, 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 is different now, although some of the parts still prevail. I think... Um, the, the, the main thing that kind of anchors everything back to Speedon is the first principle of the John Lewis partnership, which is available on the partnership website, uh, which is the ultimate, the partnership's ultimate purpose is the happiness of all its members through their worthwhile and satisfying employment in a successful business. Yeah. And I still think that was written in 1929. I still think that's incredibly clever in as much as they're saying, actually, if you take an interpretation of that to the extreme, John Lewis didn't necessarily have to be a retail business, it just happened to be because that's what his father had done. But he was creating a place in the 1920s where people were happy. And that was his fundamental, you know, kind of, you talk about Simon Sinek and, and why and purpose these days, and this was from, you know, 1929. And yeah. so I think that fabulous anchoring purpose is about the happiness of the business, but cleverly, and this is the, this has been the challenge in, in well, for a hundred years, but in most recent years as well, balancing that be between the satisfying employment and the successful business, because of course you're not going to be happy if the business is giving you ten weeks holiday and paying you way over the market rates, uh, because the business will go bust and you won't have a continuous career or, or an opportunity to develop. So put, um, putting that caveat in of um, we want everybody to be happy, but the business must be successful has proved to be a challenging balancing act over the years, but. A clever caveat, and that principle one is still at the anchor of what everything that John Lewis does, both in Waitrose and farm stores. Mm. Uh, so, a hundred years on, and we'll, we'll come on to hundred years on, still going strong? Question mark. Uh, but in, in terms of, I think you took the words right out of my mouth. We're all talking about uh, employee engagement for the last 10, 20 years, purpose. Simon Sinek with the wine. They've been presenting it as, as if it's a new notion, but it's it's been right under our nose for quite a while. I think so. I think it's just a bit more explicit these days. Um, that people are thinking about it a bit more. And and to be fair, if I kind of reflect back over my my, my twenty-six years of John Lewis, um, there were times that we lost sight of it a little bit and it seemed less important to something like it was subsumed by something else. But um, certainly when I was there, uh, in, in the customer service role I had at the end of my career from 2000 to 2008, uh, we were really promoting that and we really revisited it and said, how can we make this relevant in the new millennia? Um, and, and I know, as I say, it's very firmly embedded in that strategy today. The environment has changed over a, a hundred years. We've got the significant rise of, of competitors on the high streets. We've got a significant rise of competitors online, increasing choice for consumers. John Lewis still has this uh, ownership model, um, well known for its for its bonus, you know, that the, the profits are, sh uh, are shared. 
Um, is this still sustainable today, in your opinion? Um, I, I think so, yes. Um, I only hesitate slightly because there's an angle to this that was never uh, relevant when I was there because the profits were much higher during my career than John Lewis. Um, but some commenter, I think, commentation leading in the Financial Times saying, with the challenges John Lewis are facing at the moment, one of the things that will, will be difficult for them is they can't raise cash in the traditional ways that PLCs can go to the city and raise cash because the, the partnership arrangement doesn't allow them to do that quite as easily. Now, they have raised cash in the city before now, but so, so I, I don't quite understand how all of that worked. But as uh, so a couple of comments saying it will, it will tie their hands a little bit on being able to raise extra funding. Um, but I think the principle of employees being vested in the business and owning the business, I think, is still really powerful. Um, and I've worked with a couple of other employee ownership uh, businesses who are really reaping significant benefits out of it. And it doesn't solve everybody's problems and make everything wonderful overnight, as, as John Lewis kind of challenges will demonstrate. But I think the model of having people who are vested in the business, committed to the business, feeling part of the business is, is, is really still still very viable in this day and age. And do you, do you actually think that it, it can be a strength for investors to be able to say that well, John Lewis is a socially responsible employer? You know, what would the, the rise of ethical in, in, in investors? Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that kind of helps that, uh, that was bedded in by the founder again, is the transparency and the accountability within the business. So um, one of the things I was very conscious of is that at any time through this anonymous model, um, uh, uh, correspondence with the in-house magazine, magazines and media, um, I could be held to account for everything. And it, that sounds quite limiting as a, as a leader. Um, that you, you're held to account by the employees all the time. But actually, in practice, it just, just means that your decisions that you make are really ethical because you're thinking, actually, if I'm making a decision that I think might be a little bit challenging, if I have to justify this to 80,000 people in print, can I justify it? And if I can't justify it, the answer is don't do it. And it does, it does the partnership model certainly helps that. It helps the myriad of different aspects of the business. The bonus is obviously the most public one. But the level of accountability and communication it, it, uh, it, it allows is, is another great strength as well. Yeah. Okay, well, let's smoothly on to your role then. Uh, you had the pleasure of being with JLP for over 20 years. And John Lewis Partnership has, has slowly, surely developed this reputation for uh, service excellence. Uh, and that's something that you've particularly specialised in. How did you get into that space in, in the first place then, Andrew? I was, I was an operational retailer. Um, you know, most of my career with John Lewis was on the shop floor, running, running selling teams in, in branches around the country, um, culminating in, in running um, parts of the furniture floor in John Lewis Oxford Street in the late, late 90s. So a very operational career, really enjoyed the retail side of it. But what I came to realise is, my responsibilities as, a, as an operational leader in the shops became greater and I ran bigger teams. Is that although I still enjoy going to the product conferences and the manufacturers and, and the kind of more traditional product centric side of retail, what I was actually getting more pleasure from and more satisfaction from was developing the people and the teams. Um, 
And I also realised that whilst I had some fantastic colleagues, um, particularly in Oxford Street, actually, who, who ran teams in other departments who offered incredible levels of service, um, when I went into some other shops, um, you'd find it would vary a little bit. And sometimes you know, the service you received wasn't quite as good as you expected. One of the challenges with John Lewis at the time was, um, and it still is a very friendly business. So if I go back into a shop that I've worked in, um, you know, people would be, how are you? And how the children, how are you getting on, how's the new job going, and it's lovely. And my wife came with me shopping one day, um, and we met a bunch of people on the shopping trip longer than they should have done, which was, which was lovely. And um, my wife said to me, we left the shop, she said, you do realise that's not what, excuse me, you do realise that's what, not what ordinary customers receive, don't you, because I don't get that level of friendliness necessarily all the time when I shop. Um, and it kind of got me thinking about the consistency issue, and uh, I was then, uh, I had an opportunity to go into head office to run the department's sort of intelligence team who were, uh, again it was a quirk of the founder really, um, that they existed, but they were a business, part of the business that sat outside the business and looked back in to say what do we keep doing to make it better, what do we need to watch for our, com our competitors catching us up and what are we doing well that we need to maintain. Uh, and given that role it, for the very first time in, I think it was 98, maybe 99, uh, we mystery shop business which had never happened before and actually what my wife had told me proves to be absolutely right that John Lewis's service nationally at its best was fabulous and absolutely supported the reputation the brand had at the time but it wasn't always that good um, and that kind of got me really interested in that and then an opportunity came along uh, to take responsibility for fixing that work with the director of retail operations um, which I did from 2000 to 2008. Sounded, sounded like you pursued something that you enjoyed and loved, which was exactly what the founder was setting out to do, the happiness of all its members, right? So you, you just took that opportunity on and ticked the purpose box, I, I, I guess. I, I guess so, yeah. Um, and I, um, when I look back, and everything's so much easier with hindsight, isn't it? I was always interested if I had a Saturday job in, in the local library and was doing my A-levels. I really love the people element of that. So that had always been there, although I'd not necessarily recognised this. And I've been saying to, to my children who are just in the process of um, having left university, um, think really hard about what drives you, uh, really hard about what drives you. Because if I'd have found those answers earlier in my career, I'd have probably spent less time on the trading side and more time on the people side during my John Lewis career. Um, but I didn't, as I say, it, it was always there, but I wasn't explicitly aware of it until later in my career. But I was lucky because I got the opportunity to do something I wanted and, and I've had a great time with it since. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that's out there that you've um, uh, proposed to, to other businesses is a six-step model uh, for the, in the pursuit of, of service excellence uh, to define, to measure, to communicate, to lead, reward and recruit. Um, which, you know, we, we, we won't unpack the whole of this model, but if we just start with the first step, the, the idea of, of defining, um, you mentioned that businesses, uh, you know, they should define themselves, but not to let the competition define the business. Um, and that in the act of defining, you, sh you should think very carefully, linked to your previous answer, what you care about deeply. Um, so I'm interested to know, you know where have you taken inspiration from in terms of service excellence? Um, it, you know, perhaps there are organisations out there that, that have done this, defined themselves and done it really well. So what, what, what's your thoughts, Andrew? Um, well, the, def the define comes from 
um, something I did at John Lewis really, um, about actually breaking customer experience down into four components if you're trying to manage it strategically. And that's very simple, you've seen this model before. It's about the product or service that you offer and its viability for its new customers and its desirability. The processes that deliver those products and services, so can you actually do what you say you're going to do when you say you're going to do it? Uh, increasingly important channel, but not just digital channels, but the right blend of traditional and, and digital channels to, to meet your customer's requirements. And then the engagement of what would it feel like to deal with this business? Were they friendly on the phone? Were they friendly face to face? Were they chatty in their emails? Uh, or, or web chats and what have you. And the sixth step piece is really around the engagement and building the engagement. Uh, and that I find with businesses is one of the areas they find most challenging because it's the least tangible of those four pillars. You know, you can re-engineer your product value, you can redesign your processes, you can open up new channels or expand existing channels. Um, and all that will give you a tangible input, which hopefully if you do it well, will lead to a tangible output. Where the how did it feel can be really powerful differentiate differentiating the engagement. Um, but it's I, I avoid the word culture because it's such an ambiguous word, but it is in, in shorthand about the culture of the business uh, and the, the relationships that you build with customers through that culture. And the defined bit that you asked about, Michael, is, is really a reflection of my time at John Lewis and thinking, what did I do uh, in those eight years responsible for service at John Lewis and what was key? And part of making the intangible engagement part more tangible is to define the sort of attitude and behaviour that you would like to become famous for. Um, because you've got, to, you've got to lock it into something. You can't just say we are going to be you know, a, a highly engaged, motivated uh, business that customers love. But you've got to lock it into something. So um, my favourite globally, it doesn't come from John Lewis actually, it comes from Ritz-Carlton Hotels and Hurst Schultz when he ran that business. Um, and he had a very simple behaviour set, which was welcome, wanted, remembered and cared for. And I love it because it's so simple. I love it because it's so generic when you're explaining the principle, everybody gets it. And the other important component of this, which was fundamental to my work with John Lewis and, and how the partnership is set up, is that the welcome, wanted, remembered, cared for, you do for each other before you do it for your customers. And the whole, the whole basis is that actually if you're working in a team, where your manager, they see, make you feel welcome, the manager cares for you, you feel wanted. If you're working in that environment day to day consistently, it will be very hard not to do that for your customers. So I call it inside out customer experience. What you do for your employees is ultimately what you want to do for your customers. And there are some businesses that are really good at it. Ritz Carlton being one, I heard her short speak um, when I was newly appointed into the customer role. John Lewis and he, he, he um, inspired me massively with what he said uh, and the other one that I've worked towards a consultant since actually still have uh, an on-off relationship with is Virgin Atlantic. I've just had to bring it up because theirs is a little bit longer. There's something they wrote years ago when they started was Virgin service comes from deep within. It embraces and captures the best people. It empowers them with trust to respond at the final moments. It seduces you and makes you laugh and challenges conventionality. We make sure we keep it up day in and day out. And again, it's really descriptive. If you just started at Virgin this morning and somebody said, this is what you want, to, you want you to do, you get a really, very strong sense of what the personality of the brand is about. And delivering that consistently is really important. I've I just kind of noticed that John Lewis, Ritz-Carlton, Virgin, they each of them have a strong founder at the core. Um, yes. 
you think when you're know, going through the definition process, you can't really get away from the founder? Um, if the, well, if, if I'm working with a business um, to, to create that, that framework within a business, um, I always go back to see if the founder of the business is there. And of course, depending on whether it's a sort of SME um, that I'm working with, where the founder is, is often there. And often, actually, when you talk to them, they have a really clear articulation of the personality of the business they want to want to have created. Um, because obviously it comes from them, and obviously often it's an articulation of their personality if it's a small business. What they often haven't done is written it down and measured it, so as the business grows, it dilutes. Um, so yes, I think there is, is um, something about having a really strong founder there, but it's not a prerequisite. And the business that I worked with a couple of years ago in Southeast Asia uh, was, a, uh, was a medical logistics business uh, working across eight countries in the region. Uh, and the way it works, because they're selling very high-tech medical equipment, you, you can't set up businesses, you have to buy the licenses to sell equipment. And often that means buying existing businesses who hold those licenses. Mm. So they've grown massively by acquisition um, and really had a strong sense of what they did. They're expert and fantastic about what they did, but not so sure about the way they did it and, and the personality of the brand and the attitudes and behaviors that they're known for. So we created that from scratch, and that works as well. Um, but articulating is the important thing. So um, if you can try and be consistent in your engagement with customers and your terms of engagement in terms of attitude and behaviour, it's not about giving people scripts, which I'm not a fan of at all. It's a matter of actually giving people the attitudes and behaviours they should model. So that, that comes back to Rick Starting and welcome, want to remember, careful, I love the simplicity. Yeah. Uh, and the fact that it applies equally inside to outside, that's a key component as well. Yeah, we'll come on to uh, behaviours in the workplace and attitudes and th things like that. Um, you're, the territory that you were covering at John Lewis, uh, it, it appears it was, it was significant from, from Aberdeen to down to Southampton. And there's this, you brought up consistency a few, a few times in, in your answers. And that just it seems to me from, from the outside, I'm no expert, but consistency of service seems to be paramount when you're trying to build a brand as opposed to just you know a customer having you know, one very positive interaction with a store in Newcastle um, but actually if they go elsewhere it'll be com completely different um, and you, you you know along the way on, on the model you've mentioned the importance of, of measurement which is something you know in terms of customer service measurement I'm very uh, naive to, to that and I, I'm interested to know, you know what what approach you you took to help you gain consistency uh, within the partnership? One of the first things back in, in 2000 uh, was to actually um, set up a permanent mystery shopping drumbeat running within the business. So, so the mystery shopping I'd done initially to prove my point about the inconsistency of service uh, was set up as a one-off project when I was running the department stores intelligence team. Um, what we then went on to do when I moved to work for the director of retail operations was set up permanently with the intelligence team actually because they've always been an important part of this. Um, and we, we mystery shot the whole business um, quite extensively every quarter, which was really, really important. Um, the ethos of it though, and again, this is very typically John Lewis, but something that I, again, I believe in strongly wasn't then that if somebody got a poor set of results, you got beat them with a big stick and said, you've got to improve or else. 
because actually then became a part of my role was sharing best practice. So the electrical department in Newcastle had scored brilliantly, but the electrical department in Edinburgh hadn't, for example, and I'm making that up. Um, you get those two managers together to say, okay, running these in departments, same departments in adjacent shops, what, what's one doing that another can learn from? So it became a kind of mutual support network around the branches to improve. Um, but the measurement's really important because Again, if I keep using Ms. Carlton because it's such a simple, simple one, welcome, wanted, remember, cared for is a lovely aspiration, but it's just an aspiration unless your customers tell you you're delivering it. And indeed, again, being to the inside out, you need to measure that through employee survey to make sure your employees are feeling that as well. Um, so measurement's really critical because especially around the behavioral stuff, if you don't measure it, it, it will just drift and it will be subsumed by some operational challenge that may come along. Did did you have your own mystery shopping experiences, Andrew, or was or were you too well known within the partnership by then? Um, when I first took on the department stores intelligence team, I was only known in the branches that I'd worked in. So I I did I, part of that first mystery shop. We did to prove the point. I did quite a bit of the mystery shopping myself. Um, but once I'd done that, and once I presented at a few um, national conferences, I was too well known. Uh, to do that, but I, I, in the in mystery shopping I did, I had some really good, very much what we see in the report, I had some fantastic experiences which were really remarkably good uh, and it made you very proud to be part of the business and every so often you get a real shocker and of course you remember the shockers probably more vividly than, than the really good experiences and customers are just the same too. Yeah, but it sounds like, sounds like great fun and, and engaging process for any employee that's that's actually in retail like you bring you closer to the business well one of the things that that, that we did while i was there and this wasn't from my instigation this was the branches but i i I'd say pride in the fact we developed such a great network that people were talking to each other is that i think it was sheffield and nottingham um decided to use a team of selling assistants because they wanted more mystery shopping information than we were providing quarterly they monthly which obviously is a big expense to that so the, the cheaper way of doing it of course is, is to do some mutual mystery shopping so i'm pretty sure it was sheffield and nottingham um sent some selling assistants across into each other's shops to do a mystery shop and they obviously got mystery shopping results which was which was really important and that was what was driving it but the other thing that happened that i'll never forget which i thought was great is for argument's sake, Sheffield came back from Nottingham saying they're terrible, aren't they? And this is really bad, and I was really shocked that it was terrible that someone in John Lewis didn't set up in that way. And then they look at their own shop and say, Oh my goodness, that happens here as well. Yeah. So that was one of the more powerful things that it, you know, as I say, when you're working in your own branch, because John Lewis is a very friendly place to work, you think everybody's as friendly as, as all the all the um, colleagues that you have. Yeah. Whereas you went going anonymously as a shopper, you find actually sometimes it's not quite as wonderful as you imagine. So it was a great reality check that when we started doing that mutual mystery shopping around the country and pairing up branches, and it, it proved to be a real success. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be an external consultant that does it either. You know, that, that's a great learning tool um, if, if you've got the resource and the time to be able to do it. I'm, I'm sure Christmas isn't a great time to, to be doing it, for example. <laughs> And interestingly, actually, I suppose another observation that, that I'd make from that is actually at peak periods, at the weekends and on the late nights, and at the peak periods like Christmas and Easter, actually the service levels went up. 
Um, but yet, I'd often be told by selling partners on the shop floors that at peak periods they were short of people and they were struggling. Actually, people really raised their game when it gets busy. Um, so the mystery shop figures generally over the weekends were more, more powerful than they were during the week. That's a bit of a generalisation and I'm giving that exclusively, but there was a bit of a trend towards that. Yeah, uh, and one of the models that I saw in one of your presentations is something called the ABC model, which really struck a chord for me. Uh, if we if we go, uh, let, let me just expand on that. It's, it's called the acknowledge, build, sales, and, and close. And the key thing that stood out for me was this acknowledge stage. You might go into one shop, and actually you, you might have a, a member of the team that's actually stood in the doorway wanting people to come in and it's not the best look is it you know when you've got someone that's kind of almost desperate for, for custom there are others that you might go in and they're onto you straight away asking oh can it can i help you with anything and that kind of experience can be a little a little daunting um when you know the salespeople are that kind of proactive and and on to you how did you perfect the acknowledgement of the customer when they actually come into the, the shop and, and start looking at the, the, the products, etc. Well, interestingly, Michael, we went through all the problems that you just described when we started doing that. Um, but it, it started off, again, from this mystery shopping um, that we've done to, to test, test the service levels. Um, and there had been a mantra within the business from the early 80s that you do not approach a customer unless it's very obvious that they want your help. Um, and that had been right for the time, I think, because what they wanted to avoid was, again, what you've just described, that people were pounced on, and that was happening in a lot of our competitors at the time, particularly those who were on commission, and that you'd be pounced on as soon as you walked through the door, and they wanted a John Lewis experience to be, be kind of leisurely and, and natural and, and relaxed. But what had happened is, I suppose, society and expectations had changed, and, and, people, and we became a bit more sophisticated. Is the models coming back from customer panels and from the mystery shopping? Is that actually people could feel ignored and kind of gone too far the other way? Right. So that's what the acknowledgement was about, and it was saying actually, if a customer comes into your department, could you acknowledge them in some way within two minutes of them coming into the department? And the two minutes was important because that was to avoid the pouncing on effect, and it was to acknowledge them. And again, the whole thing that I. I spoke about at the time and I used to do endless presentations in branches um, was saying actually this is all about your intuition if someone is clearly looking at a specific product by all means go and talk to them if they're just browsing and looking at the department just make eye contact or smile so it's a very low level subtle acknowledgement but it's just a way of saying non-verbally most of the time hello welcome to John Lewis I'm here if you need any help having said that when we started to measure it um, and branches were kind of um, in a very friendly way looking at, at their, their colleagues' performance and seeing who would be the best branch for customer experience and who would be the best at acknowledgement, etc. And we did go through a period of, of people pouncing on customers because they imagined every customer was a mystery shopper, I guess. And right. I went up to make a very strong acknowledgement as they walked in the shop. So, you know, can I help you? And did you want anything today? And good afternoon. And, and um, we had to then work hard to kind of reverse out of that because we went a little bit too far for a while. But certainly within, I would say, gosh, 18 months or two years of, of the mystery shopping and this being something that we measured, we got the balance exactly right, whether it's a friendly recognition, verbal when it's appropriate, but more often than not a smile or eye contact. And it just warmed up the shops and made them friendlier without people feeling they were pounced on or sold to. Yeah, me to it there a little. Because uh, I was going, what would the founder actually say? 
himself if he if he was present and he was he was actually watching on and was had a seat at the table next to Dame Sharon White uh, and and the other senior leaders there. What, what do you think he would say? I would imagine he would be a nightmare. Um, but also, also, I mean, it's almost the unthinkable has happened at John Lewis that you know they, they encountered these difficulties. But of course, it's not just John Lewis; it's retail generally in the UK, uh, and there's a lot of social and political change that has brought that about. Um, you know, discounting in the high street, um, exchange rates dropping because of Brexit uncertainty, and an awful lot of products imported from, from outside the UK that's hit margins, and all those issues have hit so many other retailers as well. Um, so I, I guess it's 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 just endemic that it was going to hit John Lewis. I just hope it hasn't hit him so hard they can't recover. Mm. So stern words would be said, I think. From your answer, I would take that there would be a few stern words uh, in the boardroom. So okay, oh. and we can't get away from the fact that there is a, there's a political element to John Lewis partnerships journey as well. And if we if we look back on recent uh, political history, the likes of Nick Clegg, Theresa May have have made attempts to to drive greater levels of employee ownership and representation of, of employees on the board, uh, and they've they've really failed on that. I mean, there's not been much news. We've not heard a great deal of that that recently. And I I just wondered, do, do you yourself still champion? that approach and, and that model, or is there just such vast, huge change in the retail sector that it's just not sustainable anymore? Um, well, I think I think you can, if you look wider than the retail sector, as I say, if you look at the Employee Ownership Association, um, I think they've just celebrated 40 years uh, and it's a growing business, but it's, it's still quite niche. It's, it's not every business would want to do that will be able to do it. So I do see signs with other clients that I work with of people not perhaps handing over, um, you know, the, the, the entire ownership of the business that's been it, But I do see people actually handing out shares in their businesses, um, putting profit bonus bonuses in that are about group profits um, or team profits rather than individual commissions. I think retail and um, I mean, it sounds a bit selfish, but I'm kind of glad I'm not in it at the moment because I just think it's one of the hardest hardest sectors to be in at the moment with the, the current challenges it faces. Yeah, yeah. So, so the concept's still there. It's still, you know, it's still, still bubbling away. It's, it's the future of JLP that's a, that's of interest. And Dame Sharon White, she's just had her first week. This will be the end of her first week as chair uh, of, of the partnership. Uh, some huge announcements uh, recently in in the news. Possibly a third of the head office staff um, uh, possibly going. Um, possible other job cuts and, and and store closures being being aired. Um, another tough question, Andrew. If you could give her one piece of advice, what would you give her going forward? Um, oh yeah, not a question. I. I particularly enjoy answering because I'm sure she's got hundreds and hundreds of people giving her advice. Most of the retail analysts uh, have had a good go at her in the papers this week or a good go at the business. Um, I think just get, just consolidate and get back to the identity of the business. What got it to where it was? Um, I think the expansion of the physical estate has been challenging for them. I think challenging for them now in the changed climate. 
but it, it's it's expanded quite significantly. I think I've, I've been just trying to look and consolidate and think actually what was the strength of the business historically, um, and and base any decisions around that. Yeah, back to definition, back to the personality, back to yeah. the back to the purpose, back back to the why. Okay, yeah, thank you for very sight of that when you're fighting um, financial challenges as they are, but I think actually keeping close to that would be would be key. Okay, well, look, thank you for that. You've given us a, a whistle-stop tour there. What What's going to be next for you? You've, you, you've had 20-plus uh, years at JLP. You're now in the consultancy world. Um, what's the next chapter looking like for you then, Andrew? Well, I'm really enjoying it. I've been so lucky to be able to do the job that I did at John Lewis as a consultant and work for lots of, lots of other organisations, both public and private sector. As I said earlier, about 80% in the UK, 20% outside the UK. Um, and I'm getting to an age where I'm thinking about, you know, starting to think about possibly part retirement or a, an early part retirement rather than growing a business significantly more. But I'm still speaking at probably 30 or 40 events a year, which I really enjoy because that gives a great width and variety of businesses that I meet with. Uh, and I'm still consulting for about four or five businesses a year. And that gives you the depth. Just the, the, the speaking conferences is lovely, and I, I really enjoy doing that. Um, and that obviously feeds the consultancy to a degree, and vice versa. But the consultancy, again, I, I wouldn't want to stop that because that, that means you're still kind of like working with live businesses and, and have some depth of knowledge of what's going on, as opposed to just learning a little bit about them and then telling the presentations. So, all the same, really, I would say, Michael, over the next few years until I get decide that I'm either too old or too irrelevant to be in people anymore in which case i shall quietly disappear into the background <laughs> but possibly with, with one eye on john lewis and possibly still continuing to shop at john lewis and, and, and waitrose for your, for your groceries and your goods absolutely well, i was very naive when i left john lewis because i'm now very proud of what i've done there in 28 years and um was very proud of being part of that business i thought actually this is a new chapter i'm going to be consulting this is the london and it's going to Jono's behind me and retail behind me, and of course it doesn't. Once you've kind of been a part of an organisation for so many years, it's always with you. But I still have friends there that I see occasionally, uh, and I still keep an eye on what they're doing. And people, bizarrely, although it's 12 years since I worked there, people still expect me to know. Um, so I have to probably read the news as avidly as you do to make sure that I am informed about what's going on. And there's that here, so I need to go to friends as well. So it's still a big support, but still by a lot yeah well well look you've given us a, a great peek behind the curtain at, at john lewis uh, an excellent insight into service excellence and the company's history as well uh, which i'm sure any, anyone that's listening will, will really appreciate and time will tell as to what the future holds for jlp uh, i wish it i wish it well and i hope its model can continues throughout the 2020s and beyond for another 